This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. I'm Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer. And this episode, we are going on one of the boldest, most difficult and amazing treks that's ever been dreamt up. We're going to walk across the entire 2,800 mile length of Morocco with a bunch of camels. Are you ready to have some fun? Me too. Let's go. Taking us on this adventure is Alice Morrison. She's a Scottish explorer and adventurer. She's written three books and starred in a BBC2 documentary about her travels and done some really cool stuff all over the world, which we're going to hear about. But this trip, this was the big one. And there's no one more qualified to tell you about Morocco than Alice because she's made it her home. She knows it inside out and she speaks fluent Arabic. So she's able to have really detailed, intimate conversations with the people she meets along the way. And that's one of the reasons that this story is so special. Plus, she is... Indiana Jones for girls. I didn't coin that phrase and neither did she, but that's what she's known as and it suits her down to the ground because this isn't just any old trek. This is a trek through ancient history that even Indy would be proud of. We're going to lost cities. We're going to tombs of giants. We are going to have some proper fun. Accompanying her on this journey is her two guides, Brahim and Adi, and I mention them because they are a part of this story too, and you're going to hear about them. So, if you enjoy this episode, please go and connect with Alice. Her Instagram and Twitter is AliceOutThere1, that's the number one, not the word. Her Instagram is awesome, by the way, definitely check that out. Her Facebook is Alice Hunter Morrison Adventures, and her YouTube channel is simply called Alice Morrison, which is definitely worth checking out. She has those three books I mentioned, and the latest of which is called Adventures in Morocco. I'll link to it. And if this story whets your appetite for more Indiana Alice style adventures, you're going to love it. Finally, because I know you love podcasts, please check out hers. It's called Alice in Wonderland. Great title. It's one of my favorite travel podcasts out there, and I really think you're going to like it too. Just search it up wherever you get your shows, Alice in Wonderland, or check out the episode page at the website. I'll link to it there as well. So we're just about to get started, but before we do, please remember if you're enjoying the show, if it's inspiring you and you feel that this message, our message of love for the outdoors, for exploration, for unity and curiosity and respect for different cultures is worth spreading, please help by telling a friend, posting about it on social media, hitting that follow button, hitting that five-star review and subscribing to the show. It really does make a huge difference. So thank you for your support and thank you for whatever you can do. The social media is at Armchair Explorer Podcast across Instagram and Facebook. The website is armchair-explorer.com where you can find background information on each episode, book trips inspired by the show and sign up for the newsletter. But don't worry about that now, because we are about to set out on a 2,800-mile trek through one of the most beautiful and fascinating countries in the world. And we're doing it 
with Indiana Jones for Girls. So let's find out a little bit more about her first. What really grips my heart is the big open spaces of nature and that feeling of being an absolutely intrinsic animal on the earth, you know, walking across the earth, walking towards a far horizon, using your own body to get you there and having a very, very simple life, walking, sleeping, eating and having the companionship of your team and the people you meet along the way. I was brought up in the foothills of the Mountains of the Moon, the Ruwenzori's in Uganda, looking out over the game parks, which at that time were filled with herds and herds of elephant and zebra, buffalo. For me, Africa is a part of my soul. The red earth and the feel of the sun, the smell of the eucalyptus, the smell of, of pines, the sounds, the people, those are my earliest memories. And that is certainly somewhere that calls to me. And it did. As we'll see later on, she ended up making her life and her home in northern Africa, in Morocco. And that's where this story takes place, of course. But it wasn't a straight line. Despite dreaming of far-off lands, despite that call of Africa, she followed the path so many of us do and started, quote-unquote, a normal career. And she excelled at it, eventually becoming the CEO of a big media company. But then... All of a sudden, in her mid-40s, she heard that call again and couldn't resist. She quit the rat race and joined the bike race instead, quite literally. She entered the Tour d'Afrique, a more than 7,000-mile bike race from Cairo to Cape Town. Her book on that is called Dodging Elephants, by the way, which she actually did. But that wasn't quite hard enough for her, so she entered the Marathon de Sable, which is the most masochistic race in the world, six marathons and six days across the Sahara, and the middle one is a double, so 50 miles. And she says, get this, she's not a very good runner. But eventually, through some twists and turns and lots of other adventures, she discovered Morocco and just fell in love with it. It is a country where you have ocean, desert, mountains, you have snow in the winter, you have, you know, 50 degree heat in the summer. It's extraordinarily beautiful. And more than that, it's the people. They're very open hearted, friendly, like a laugh, have a very strong sense of family values, sense of us sharing the planet with people, animals and our environment. I think what Moroccans have taught me is that it's not what you do or what you achieve or what you earn that matters. It's what you are and how you behave and how you act with other people and with everything around you. And I found all of that very life affirming. Morocco is an amazing country. I was lucky to spend a week writing about the Berber communities in an area called Demnat in the foothills of the Atlas Mountains. And it was like going back in time. Simple stone houses literally glued together with a mixture of mud, salt and chaff from the fields. Shepherds tending their flocks and groves of ancient olive trees. The mezzoin call to prayer welcoming the sunrise every morning. No running water or electricity. Life here has changed little in centuries. But it was the Berber people themselves, the Imazin as they call themselves, which made the whole trip. I live with an Amazir family in a family compound, although I have my own um, house above a cow and the chickens. 
So the Amazir people are uh, native to the whole of North Africa, and at one point the Amazir Empire stretched all across the north from Morocco to Egypt and then all the way down to West Africa to Mali. So it's a very considerable empire. The people are traders, nomads, herdsmen, farmers, all of those things they excel at. They have their own language, Tamazirt, but actually in Morocco there are three different Amazir languages. Amazir means free man. It's the original word for people that are now called the Berbers. And Berber came actually initially from Latin because what happened was the Romans invaded and Tamazirt is very like birds singing. It's, it's, it's got no, very lots of consonants and no vowels. So the Romans went, what is all this bar, 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 bar? And that bar, 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 which means blah, 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 in Latin came to be Berber. And the reason people don't like it so much now, of course, is Berber in French, who were the colonists of Morocco at one stage, is a pejorative word because it means barbaric. But I think what makes Morocco so lovely to live in and so interesting is that you have the Amazir people and you have the Arab people. And of course, you also have the French and the Spanish and so many different foreigners who come in and people from sub-Saharan Africa, places like Senegal coming up. So it's extremely cosmopolitan. And I think the mixture of Amazir and Arab makes it very special and very unique because they are different cultures, different languages, bound together by Islam, and they bring a, a different perspective. Those Romans, by the way, they never conquered the Imazin, one of the few places in the world that can say that. And the French didn't have much luck either. They are an amazing people. But it was 2018. She'd been busy working, writing books. She filmed that TV series for the BBC. But she hadn't been out there exploring, traveling for a while, not properly. And she was starting to get a little itchy for adventure. She spread a map of Morocco out on the floor and spotted the Dra River. And that sparked an idea to walk the entire 750-mile length of it. And as we'll see, that was just the start. A river is a very sensible, understandable journey because of the beginning and the end. And I was drawn to the fact that it went through different environments, mountain, desert, plains and ocean. Also, I wanted to investigate the issue of water because the river dries dammed at the beginning by the Mansoura Dahabi Dam near Wazazat, which has affected the life as you go further down river. It's done in order to use water sensibly, conserve water. But of course, any action you take has a reaction. And I was very interested in exploring that as well. The Dry River was really an exploration. In terms of Indiana Jones for girls, the Dry River gets big points. It's been settled for a long time, for millennia. So you have traces of history all along it. And I'm, I'm a history nerd. I love it. I love it, especially when I can see it and experience it for myself. And we were, you know, we were walking along it with a caravan of camels. Ah, the camels. Yes. She didn't just plan to walk the entire length of the Draw River on foot. She intended to do it towing a caravan of camels behind her, just as nomads and traders had done in this region for thousands of years. I am a camel fan. I love camels. They are the best animals in the world. There is a verse in the Quran addressed to the unbelievers. And the first line is, why haven't they looked at the female camel and how she is created? Because if you do that, you will be convinced there is a God, which has a truth to it. Camels are amazing. They are so strong. They can go for so long without water. They can carry a lot. And they're very intelligent. And they graze on things that nobody else wants. They love thorns. To a camel, a thorn is like a delicious little salad tossed 
with a tad of goat's cheese. They love them. So I'm a fan. I had distinct favourites and my number one favourite is Hamish. He's very naughty, he's a bad boy, I love a bad boy. He did try to bite my head off, which wasn't good. And a male camel can actually bite your arm off, actually take an arm off. So you have to be a bit careful. I spent my whole expedition trying to bribe him to make him love me with food and then having to avoid his snapping jaws. But there was something about him. And when you get to camp, the first thing you do is you take all the stuff off the camels quickly because their backs are tired. They've been carrying. So you just put it all onto ground, higgledy-piggledy. And the minute we'd got his saddlebags, everything off, he would lie out full length on his side with his head on one of the bags and just have a little siesta in the middle of camp. It cracked me up every time. That is a camel after my own heart. And we shall hear more from Hamish later on. But for now, the expert expedition is about to start. She began in the Atlas Mountains just north of Warazate in the middle of the country. Her walk across Morocco was done in three parts, but not consecutive parts geographically. And the reason for that was she didn't know that she was going to end up walking across the whole country when she started. At first, she was just planning to walk the length of the Draw River. She walked, she writes, in rhythm with nature, seeing every dawn and every sunset, watching the moon go through three full cycles when at its brightest it illuminated the earth with the clarity of early daylight. It's beautiful. And her days fell into a simple rhythm, getting up at dawn, having breakfast and walking throughout the day from well to well until the camels got hungry and started demanding a place to camp and graze for the night. But there's more than just camels on this adventure. After all, she is Indiana Alice. And where would Indy be without a good old archaeological mystery? So we found these huge tumuli on top of ridges in the desert. And they're these 500-metre wingspans. They look like giant birds. They look like giant Star Trek spaceships. And they were built thousands of years ago. They're still visible. They all point west. They were built as kind of funerary, we believe, as funerary monuments. That is what people think. But my goodness, they look like a blooming spaceship, I swear to you. So things like that are such fun to, to find for yourself. You know, you're walking in the middle of the wilderness. We walk up a ridge and there they are. And it looks like a jumble of stones till you start to explore it. And then when you get higher and you look from above, it's a quite a clear shape. That stuff, it's just amazing. It kind of gives you such a thrill. There's also um, four meter long tombs. In Islam, when you're buried, you get buried with a stone at your head and a stone at your feet. And in the Dra, there are graves that are four meters long. There's about 30 of them, we think. And they are called the graves of the giant men, the graves of the giants. How fascinating is that? Are they giants? Are they actual giants buried in those tombs? Or were they men of great renown or repute who were given this kind of ceremonial extra body length and have come to be known as giants? There is everything still to discover. We don't know very much. We know that people talk about the great men of the Dra, the tall men of the Dra in local history. Also in the Quran, it is believed that men used to be taller and live longer. That's it. That's it. The rest is a mystery. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that places like that still exist? Places that haven't been turned into tourist attractions. Places that are still just pure Indiana Jones exploration. And the further she walked, 
the more she discovered ancient rock art, troglodyte caves, a lost city. She actually found that one by just wandering up a random hill near camp one night. And there it was, an enormous expanse of old stone houses and shepherd enclosures, believed to be at least 4,000 years old, stretching across the entire hillside and down into the next valley. It was an incredible sight. But the end, the end of the draw was calling. She crossed the barren lands around Jebel Sagro, the mountains of drought, hiked over the great dunes of Urg Shigasa, past lands once fertile but now dried up through climate change and dams and the needs of the cities. The further she walked, the more she bonded with her team too. They became family. Adi, the naughty one, she says. Brahim, who gave her her desert name. Sahara, which means flower. And then, finally... 81 days later, she reached the sea. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. On the last day of the draw, I didn't yet know that I was going to continue to walk across the whole of Morocco. So it was a big ending for me. And the ends of expeditions are very difficult. They're quite traumatic. You're ready to go home, of course, and see people, see your friends, see your family. But at the same time, you've created a whole world for yourself with your team and with what you're doing. And it's a very beautiful, exciting, enriching world. And it's going to end. It's almost, it's like a little death, really. And for about 10 days, Adi and I be saying to each other, we're going to Al-Bahar, which is the sea in Arabic, Al-Bahar. And Adi and I were saying, we're going to swim, we're going to swim, we're definitely going to swim. Brahim was going, I hate swimming, I'm not going in. But we had all this kind of expectation of what we were going to do. And then suddenly there is the sea right there and all the sea goats, as they're called, seagulls. Adi called them sea goats. It was very beautiful. We're at the ending. We all felt that we'd done so well. You know, the expedition had been such a huge success. We we loved each other. We'd got on so well. We discovered so many things. We were on time. Everything had gone really, really, really well. Alhamdulillah, everything had gone so well. And we just had that feeling of success and excitement. Once we linked our arms and we were singing this silly song that Adi had sung all the way through the trip as we walked into the waves together. But of course, it wasn't over. It was just the first part of a trilogy of epic treks. She went home, back to the cow and the chickens and her Amazir family. But it wasn't long before she started dreaming of adventure again. She spread that map out on the floor and started planning. 
If she could walk the entire length of the Dra River, why not just keep going? Why not walk the entire length of Morocco? There was just one problem. For the next section, she would have to cross the Sahara Desert. Here's my top tip. Don't walk across the Sahara. That's it. It was the longest of the legs. It was the most difficult of the legs by a mile. In a way, it was the most magnificent of them. We just walked through nothingness. Not a shrub, not a tree, not a bush. I felt sometimes as though I was actually going to float off the top of the world. So it was an absolute psychological experience. Not just for me, you know, Abdi and Brahim and Lahu, who was with us, we all felt the same. The other factor in the Sahara, apart from the fact it's boiling during the day and freezing at night and you're often walking through sand, all of these are bad things. The last thing was the wind. That wind would drive you mad, I think. It certainly almost drove me mad. The direction we were walking in, it was permanently in my left ear and it was really loud and it sometimes it blew sand. When it blew sand, that was extra misery. Walking in a sandstorm when you've got a head cold and an ear infection is as close to hell as I can think of. The Sahara expedition will take her 1,200 miles from the Atlantic coast to Morocco's southernmost tip through one of the most brutal landscapes on the planet and also one that is virtually unexplored in this part of the Sahara. In the day, temperatures soar to well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit with no shade, no cloud cover over sand and rock baked to more than 170 degrees Fahrenheit, literally hot enough to melt the soles off your shoes. And they would walk a half marathon, 15 or so miles through this hell every single day. But despite the difficulty, there were moments of sublime beauty too. I love the desert. I'll be back as soon as I can. Once you've had your taste of it, for most people, it's a drug. You will go back. I don't even know why. I think it is the emptiness, the scale of it, the fact that everything is stripped back, the fact that you notice every detail. And all that noise, that noise of modern civilization, that noise of the society we live in is all stripped away. At dusk, so the men always prayed at sunset, but at dusk, we would all go up. We'd climb up the dune and sit the four of us on top to watch the sun go down and the camels would be out a bit further on because even in that environment there was still stuff to eat so they'd be off grazing and there was just one day when the sun was setting and the sky turned pink and then it turned orange and gold and yellow and set itself on fire from the top of the dunes and the camels came walking up with that very slow rhythmic grace and passed over the top of the dunes and we followed them down as the men went to pray. And as you go down a sand dune when it's so untouched, there are no other humans there or anything there, it makes a booming sound, like it's almost like it's speaking to you. That is the voice of the dunes. So the dunes were singing to us as we walked down them with the camels at sunset, a sunset on fire. When Marco Polo crossed the desert, he blamed those singing dunes on mysterious spirits. And though there may well be mysterious spirits of one kind or another in the Sahara, the singing is actually caused by the noise of individual grains of sand tumbling down a dune. On their own, you can barely hear it, of course. But taken together, they create a symphony, an eerie booming sound like the bowing of a cello. Day after day she walked. Day after day the horizon remained unchanged, the heat blistering. The Sahara is a place not fit for human habitation. Well, not for most of us, anyway. 
This is the land of the Sarawis, which means the people of the desert. They have their own language and dress and customs, and she could not have survived without their hospitality. We met nomads all along the three expeditions. They were very intrinsic, and it's, it was very interesting for me to see and to plot how their way of life is changing. Addi, who was with me the whole time, he is a nomad. That's his life. I was brought up. His mom and dad are nomads. His family are all nomadic. And Brahim also comes, his father was a herdsman. So it was a very important part of the journey, a central thing. One of the areas where it was all thrown into very high relief was the Sahara. In the Sahara, the nomads have had to adapt to survive in that environment. And in the Sahara, they tend to be more camel nomads. So they have large herds of camels, two to 300. There are different people. There are Sahrawis. And the Sahrawi people themselves are very distinct people. They speak Arabic, but it's a form of Arabic called Hassaniya. And they, they live within the desert. But in order to live within the desert, they have had to adapt. So now if you're a Sahrawi nomad, you have a Land Rover, a Wata. They call it a Wata. They have a Wata. And these Watas are ancient. Some of them are tied together with string. They're all from the 50s, the 40s. They are your proper old vintage Land Rovers being used, hammered every day. They all have GPSs. They have water trucked into them so beside an encampment you'll have an enormous and I, I mean enormous the size of my bedroom white plastic bag which is filled with 60 metric tons cubed of water and that is what they feed the camels with and they would give us water as we went without the water from the nomads we would have had to abandon the expedition and or die because there is no water there used to be water now there is no water they stayed with nomadic families throughout the journey. It was one of the most amazing parts of it, actually. Different peoples, different lands, but wanderers, all of them, just like us. And despite the scarcity of the region, they would be welcomed into homes, fed sweet tea, freshly baked bread and dates. They would be given water for them and the camels as much as they needed. Such is the way of the desert. Such is how all survive. And those encounters gave her a rare insight into the culture, too. As a, a woman, it's a different experience. But what I found is that it's a huge advantage to me because I do also speak the languages of the places I'm exploring. So I've been able to communicate on this particular journey reasonably well. And what I've been able to do is talk to the women. I've been walking through segregated traditional societies. A male explorer is never going to be allowed to go and talk to the family, the women and children in the way that I am. What happens when we go to somebody's home, which we're invited to all the time, people are so welcoming, they, they will do anything for you. We've had people chasing us down the road to give us fresh bread and figs and honey. But when you go into somebody's home, immediately I am split off from the men and I go into the kitchen with the women and the men go into the salon. And then I'll be with the women, often even also for the meal, we might well eat separately. And sometimes it, it can be a bit discombobulating and I, I can feel a bit of a western you know really the kitchen again but actually it's an honor because what happens for me is I get to talk to the women and from the women I hear what it's like what they want for their children what their hopes and aspirations are things that I'm interested in like you know what shampoo do they use and what do they wear and how do they cook and how easy is it to get fruit and veg if you're out here and what do they grow and what do they do if you know if their hands my hands were splitting with the cold how do you sort that out all these things that I get to learn and that it would be very difficult for a man to do and I think it's a blessing I think it's it's a, an extra 
She was getting close. She had walked for close to three months non-stop. Her body, her mind were pushed to the limit, constantly thirsty, constantly tired, but still constantly amazed by the soft, stark beauty of this empty land and constantly having fun. The evenings, she writes, are filled with food, stories and riddles. The four of us sit on the rugs on the floor of the tent and after we've had our soup eaten with bread and fat dates and our stew or pasta... Someone always pipes up with a riddle. And here's one of them. This city is circled with green gardens. Its houses are red, its inhabitants are black, and the key to it is a knife. Have a think about that. I'll tell you the answer at the end of the show. But then, just a few days from the end, disaster struck. On this kind of expedition, there are dangers, but there was one day that we were walking across a sub, what they call a sabcha, which is a valley, I guess. Not too far. We were about three kilometers from the sea. And normally we wouldn't cross the sabcha because there is a danger of quicksand. But we decided to go for it because it cut such a whole day off our journey and it looked really firm. It looked really secure. And we just loaded the camels with water from the well, so they were very heavy. We started walking through the sabcha and we were probably a kilometer, two kilometers into it. We walked in formation of three. So Lahu and Adi were walking ahead with three, their three camels. Callum, sausage. Hold on. I've just got to say, there is a camel somewhere in the world right now called Sausage. And of course, following close behind was Hamish and his pals Alastair and Hector. Surely the only Scottish camels on the planet. And as they walked, Alice was feeling good. The sand was getting less crunchy. It seemed like it was getting firmer. That was a good sign. And she turned to Brahim, smiling, and shouted up to him that it felt like maybe the danger had passed. A second after I said that, Adzi gave out the most huge scream, yell, screaming for Lahu, 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 come here. And Callum, his lead camel, had plunged into the sand up to his chest. His legs had just gone straight, almost like a, a hole. They'd just gone straight down. So... The camels were tied to each other in the train. So Callum was dragging down. Alistair was behind him. Alistair behind him. And again, everything in this kind of very dangerous situation, everything goes into slow motion. By this time, the camels are screaming. They're bellowing. They roar like lions' camels. So Addy, by brute force, pulled his head up and dragged him backwards out of the sand. Meanwhile, Lahu is pulling Alistair behind him out of the sand that way. And the three of them, they manage to get the boys out of the sand. So the camels come out, but they're very distressed. They've just had a huge fright. As this is happening, Brahim just turns. He doesn't go to help. He just turns his three directly around and follows his own footsteps back. It doesn't work. As he goes straight back, Hunter plunges into quicksand up to his neck. And the same thing happens. Brahim deals with it slightly differently. He cuts the baggage off and pulls Hunter up. Hamish is behind him. So and by that time, I've now got the first three camels. So I'm standing, holding them. I'm just trying to stand and hold these panicking camels while the next three are rescued from the sand. We get them all out and we go as closely as we can to our own footsteps and get out of it. It costs us a whole day because we then have to go all the way around and we've already lost the day. But we were so lucky and the men were just saying, you know, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. We were close, the camels were close to being lost. What happens with quicksand is there's water under the sand. And if their feet had got to the water, they would have sunk. Like I say, 
Indiana Alice. Because what kind of Indiana Jones adventure would it be without an unhealthy dose of quicksand thrown in? Indy, by the way, has been trapped not once, but twice in it. And clearly, given how he floundered each time, could have done with Brahim and Adi by his side. Though I'm not sure how he would have put up with Hamish. But they made it out and gradually made their way towards the end in Morocco's southern border. Not that it got easier. The Western Sahara is a disputed area and they had to cross minefields to get there, camping out literally beside landmines as they slept. Talk about not wanting to get up for a pee in the night. But eventually... They did make it. They survived the hardest, most grueling part of the journey. The end of the trilogy was now in sight. But to get there, they had to cross the Atlas Mountains. The Atlas Mountains was the most beautiful stage. The Sahara, we'd been starved of visual stimulus, but the Atlas Mountains are glorious. Wildflowers, crops, tiny villages, casbahs, towering peaks desert plains, lots of wildlife. It was so rich. And having done the Sahara as my previous one, I enjoyed every moment of that. The beauty of the Atlas Mountains is extraordinary. So we started off kind of in the foothills of the reef, quite close to the Algerian border at Nador, in very hilly mountainous area. And interestingly, the problem for us at the beginning was it was so hot. It was too hot for the camels. The camels kept sitting down and not moving. It was 48 degrees. If I drink a sip of water, it immediately spouts out of me and sweat. And I am suffering so badly. The camels are worse off. They actually sat down, they couched and just wouldn't, they went on strike. They were like, oh, sorry, mate, we're all out. We're, we're out. We cannot work in these conditions. And we had to leave one of them actually couched on the side of the road, take all his baggage off and come back to collect him after dusk when it cooled down a bit. It was too hot for the camels. That's how hot it was. And if you're a Fahrenheit person, 48 degrees is about 120 degrees Fahrenheit. They thought they had it tough in the Sahara, right? But here, at least they had water and the landscape was spectacular. They walked from the lush alpine mountains of the Rif through oak and cedar forests, macaque monkeys hiding in the tree, over a 60-mile stretch of high plateau desert, then climbing higher again to the tallest peaks of the Atlas, where the most remote of the Amazine villages lie. 900 miles, the last leg, and the big prize, what she was really looking for, was dinosaurs. The whole journey... Addy particularly had been teasing me about dinosaurs. So Addy would pick up a chicken bone and go, look, Zahra, it's a dinosaur toe. He thought it was hilarious. I'd been looking for these dinosaur prints because Morocco is very, very rich for dinosaurs. And I'd spent the whole nine weeks trying to find a dinosaur footprint. And then in the last week, Nirvana, we found our dinosaur footprints. These were prints made by animals walking in the flat mud millions of years ago. And then as the they solidified in the mud and you can even see sometimes where, the, where their feet have slipped on the mud and then as the atlas moved because Morocco is very very active geologically still very active the mud went upwards so it went from horizontal flat mud up into a vertical cliff face so what you'll see is a row of footprints across a cliff face that at one point were was down on the ground. What kind of gives them away, if you like, is the track of them and the size of them. So you'll see a line of these massive footprints. It's like, those are dinosaur footprints. But to see them close up, of course, we had to climb up the blooming cliff. Of course, the minute I get on the cliff, I'm petrified. But I managed to traverse the cliff, go and measure the footprints. And they, they were very large, 60 centimetres wide and 90 centimetres tall. See the depth of them, put my hand right into a dinosaur footprint, which was one of the great moments of my life. 
it was fantastic. That's the joy of it, isn't it? I touched a dinosaur footprint. I had my hand in a dinosaur footprint millions of years ago, an enormous, enormous mammal trod in this mud and its traces are still there. Feeling part of something so much bigger than yourself gives you hope and optimism and pleasure in life. I've been lucky enough to experience that myself and it's a strange feeling. Here, in this exact spot, an actual dinosaur walked. What would be a monster in our world today, a bona fide proper beast, laid its foot in the mud and walked past, just here. And that, I think, is the strange joy and wonder that Alice felt, because that footprint came from a different world. And yet, it's a bridge between us two. 67 hard days of walking later from the start of the Mediterranean back to the Draw River, where it all began, nearly 3,000 miles in total, the first woman to cross the entire length of Morocco, Alice, Brahim and Adi found themselves walking to the finish line. It was a big deal. The British ambassador came with his wife to walk the final few miles with them. Moroccan TV was there. They had done something extraordinary and a big party was in store. We walked along the shores of the barrage, the dam, with the sun glinting, the little boats, enormous herons circling overhead. And then we entered through the palm groves of Wazazat and into Wazazat City itself. And we took the camels down through Wazazat City, which is a, you know, a small but modern city, the gateway to the desert. And of course, we just caused a riot. Everyone was so excited. All the horns are going on the traffic. It felt like something special. We felt like we really achieved something or done something. And then the very, very end, by this time, it was getting towards five o'clock. And if you've been to Africa, you know that time when the sun is just, it's dusk and the light is golden and all the dust flakes are in the air. Everything has kind of a golden dust on it. And we're walking along the very last part to Dardaif, this guest house, which we were staying at, a beautiful guest house, very traditional gorgeous carving and ornate huge door and we're walking through the tiny village along the dirt road to get there and the band arrives and in the olden days when a caravan arrived back in the village everybody in the village would turn out to greet it because it was their family their husbands and their fathers and brothers sons would be arriving back and they would have music and they would be welcomed with the traditional dates and milk which is the traditional welcome and that happened for us and there was a traditional Amazir band with the guys in beautiful blue and green jalabas and special slippers and their little tarbushes. And they just danced in front of us and the camels playing traditional music. All the women in the village came out and danced behind them and grabbed me and we're all dancing along the street with the sun shining through the golden sand. It was a fitting end to such an amazing journey. And of the camels, yes, Hamish and Sausage made it through too. And yes, Hamish is still her favourite, even though he's a very bad boy. But she didn't just learn about tombs of giants and dinosaur footprints and singing sands. She learned something far more important, too. What I learned is that no matter how different we sound on paper, human beings are one tribe. I was only worried about one thing before setting off on the expedition. I was worried about being lonely. I knew I'd be walking with three very traditional, very religious Moroccan men. I thought 
they might disapprove of me as a woman, a single woman, unmarried, no children. I was concerned about that. I thought, well, they'll disapprove of me because here I am traveling around, being my, you know, zipping around, being myself. And I haven't done what I am meant to do. I just haven't done it. It wasn't like that at all. I love these men and they love me right back. We became a team. We were bonded together by our experience. The fact that I am a middle-aged, white, Christian, highly educated woman. And for example, Addy is a 23-year-old nomad who's never been to school. Didn't matter a jot. We got on like a house on fire. And that was the most beautiful thing about this whole experience to me. Human life can be quite complicated, can't it? Especially in our in our modern world. Very involved and complex and very noisy. We are overloaded. We are bombarded with messages about what we should be and what we should do and what we should like and what we should eat. And I mean, my goodness, I feel bullied sometimes by the noise. And yet we need other humans to survive. We love other humans. Our families, our friends are the most important things to us. So leaving, if you like, all the noisy civilization behind, but still being able to have that link with the very fundamentally great things about being a human, you know, walking along, using tools, finding water, being companions, was fantastic. In the great calm of the wilderness, she writes, you have time to see and hear everything, a tiny wildflower and a tumble of rocks the halting song of the black and white mulla mulla bird, the flash of a fat green caterpillar undulating along the sand. Time in the wilderness does that to you, doesn't it? And perhaps that's why we go to shut out that noise of modern life, that relentless information, and just watch instead the sunrise and set, the moon pass through its cycles, the breath and rhythm of nature all around. But there's another reason we travel too, and that's also what she discovered on this journey. And I think this quote sums it up really well. It's from Maya Angelou, and Alice has it on the top of her website. Perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all people cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we try and understand each other, we may even become friends. She proved that to herself. And to all of us, we are all one tribe. Thank you, Zahara, Indiana, Alice. Thank you for taking us on this incredible journey across deserts and mountains and river valleys through history and some of the most fascinating cultures on earth. And if you want to know the answer to that riddle, it's watermelon. This city is circled with green gardens. Its houses are red. Its inhabitants are black. And the key to it is a knife. I didn't get it either. So remember to please, please go and connect with Alice. She has an awesome blog, Instagram and podcast, which is called Alice in Wonderland. It's a great show and you can find it everywhere you get your shows. Just search it up. Her Instagram and Twitter is Alice out there one. That's the number one, not the word. Her Facebook is Alice Hunter Morrison Adventures and her YouTube channel is simply called Alice Morrison. There's fun videos of her adventures up there. I'll be putting a few up on the website too. So go and hang out with her. She's great company and her website is alicemorrison.co.uk. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to pick up Alice's book for more of the same. It's called Adventures in Morocco. She's a great writer. It covers a lot of the things we haven't had a chance to go into, and it's a great read. I'll link to it on the episode page of the website.
So we're just about done. But before we go, thank you so much again to all of you for listening. Thanks for being part of this community and for helping this community and our message of love for the outdoors, adventure, and the pure joy of traveling through this amazing planet of ours grow. Follow me on at Armchair Explorer Podcast. And don't forget to keep exploring because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.